left off um, a couple weeks ago, somewhere around Daniel 3, verse 5 or 6, um, and I have the slide up to the end of verse 5, the end of my notes. I remember talking about this with you, that these, uh, especially these six Hebrew words, or I should say Aramaic words, um, are kind of tough to translate, and I'd like to just go over my point there. Um, the words are Karen, Mashroki, Katros, Sabka, Pazag, Terin, and Supnaya, and uh, I've got a couple translations there. We kind of land on horn with the first one, Karen, which is the, also the Hebrew, or the yeah, the Hebrew um, uh, uh, word for for horn. Um, uh, mashroki, flute or pipe. Katros, something with string. Uh, uh, please don't read our English or Latin word quattro into that. Um, that's, there's nothing about the word for in Aramaic in this word. Um, it just happens to start with katros. Um, and then sabka, another instrument probably played with, with strings, whether it's a, a harp or a lyre or a zither or what did my teacher used to play when I was in elementary school with the, with the push buttons, the uh, auto harp or uh, uh or other things like that. I think I mentioned the Irish Cruth last time or some kind of primitive guitar. Um, and then we have the Pasag Tarin, another stringed instrument of some kind, which makes three, doesn't it? Zither, harp, lyre, or whatever. Um, and, uh, and then the last one, Supnaya, uh, some kind of a pipe, probably, um, maybe a straight flute, um, I'm not sure about the ESV's bagpipe. Um, who was I talking to about that before class started? Um, was that, oh, that was probably Mr. Cushel in here helping me with some technical issues, but we kind of wondered about the bagpipe and the 5th century BC. I don't know when the bagpipe was invented. I'm not sure that we're in the right century for that to show up in a translation. But essentially a bagpipe is just a flute played with a bellows, um, so I'm, I'm not really sure about that one. The word bellows I'd like you to store away in your mind for later in the chapter. Um, but anybody, I mean, I probably can't answer, but anybody have any question about these instruments? I do want to make a point about them. The point I want to make is that just as we struggle with how to translate them, so did the Greeks translating the Old Testament in the 2nd or 3rd century B.C., so just a couple of hundred years after Daniel's time, they were already struggling with these words. Um, and the Septuagint, which is that Greek translation made very early, a couple hundred years before the time of Christ, they, they don't know what to do in the Septuagint with some of these words already. And some of these words are not Aramaic, especially Pasagterin and Sabka. We're talking about Greek loanwords that Greek translators didn't know anymore. So, um, in the 19th century, it was a popular fad to try to say, oh no, the Bible is much younger than we think it is. That the books of Moses and the prophets and others 
had to have been written much, much later than we think, than classically we thought that they were. And the bottom line is that no, Moses didn't write Genesis, or Daniel didn't write Daniel. Isaiah, certainly there wasn't only one Isaiah, and however many there were, two or some people thought three, did not live at the same time, were not students of the same prophet, and they lived much later. Um, Those theories which were brought forth by two German, I hesitate to use the word scholar, but I'll I'll use the word scholars, their names were Graf and Wellhausen. Um, uh, It fascinates me that the same arguments that they used on the authors of the Bible, I can now use on them. I can't prove that Graf and Wellhausen ever existed. Uh, Those men, I I think that their theories maybe were were proposed by students of somebody like them, but I can't identify those individual men in history. I can't prove that they are buried in the graves that are marked with their names, and I don't think they ever really existed. So I think the Graf-Wellhausen theory is much newer than Graf and Wellhausen themselves. Um, So there, Um, I've done enough of that. I would like to say something else, though. A couple of years ago, um, actually, this coming February, it'll be exactly two years ago, I wrote a conference paper that I worked on for 11 years. Um, That conference paper that I was agonizing to be able to present, I really wanted to to write it and to give it. However, there are so many pastors in our conference that you've got to wait your turn. So if I get another B in my bonnet, I'm going to have a long wait before I get to, I might be retired before I get to present that second, that, that next paper of mine, but we'll see. Um, but what I did was I, I evaluated a Hebrew verb stem uh, that uh, it, it tends to intensify uh, any, any root, any Hebrew verb root. Um, the, the stem is called the P-A-L, spelled P-I-E-L, P-A-L. And uh, there are six of those roots in Hebrew, and, and that's one of them. And I, 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 I categorized it, and it's passive, called the pu'al, and I counted every instance of that stem in the Old Testament. Um, it's 6,000-some. And then I evaluated how it gets used in many of those cases. I didn't evaluate all of them, although I was getting pretty far by the time it was... I was told I could actually finish the paper and present it, so I had to quit counting and get down to writing and so forth. Um, What I found was something that every Lutheran pastor knows is that that's not the only kind of that intensifying verb. There are others that I'll call oblique versions of the PAL stem. Um, And if I'm going too deep, just raise your hand, but not yet. those oblique or, I'll call, or maybe alternative versions, they show up later in Hebrew. And they're pretty common in the, in, the, in the glory days of Hebrew literature when the greatest Hebrew writers who had contact with many other languages were really in the flower of Hebrew poetry. Um, and who would we expect to find in that period? Well, a little bit of David, a lot of Solomon, and some of the priests living at the time of David and Solomon, and then the earliest of the writing prophets, people like Isaiah, um, Joel, Amos, 
those individuals, right in the right in the in the absolute glory days of of the Hebrew language. And what I discovered was that there are lots of variations and those alternative forms in those time in that time period. It kind of lags off a little bit, but not too much later on in the days of the captivity and the minor prophets and in Daniel. However, those alternative forms are almost completely non-existent in these books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua, and to a certain extent in Judges. Now to me, that evaluation of how the Hebrew language works and how people who spoke Hebrew were using Hebrew, first of all, tells me that I think the same author, based on just the language, wrote everything from Genesis to Deuteronomy. And who was that author? Moses, yeah. And then uh, a contemporary of Moses was Joshua, who wrote the book of Joshua. Makes sense that they would have similar language, right? and there are forms that would be perfectly commonly used in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Daniel, that don't occur at all in Moses. And it suggests an early date for the writings of Moses and a later date for these other authors. And uh, the, 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 the use of these verbs, these verb forms in Isaiah is pretty uniform throughout the book. The beginning, the middle, and end of Isaiah, you have the same kind of language being used. Um, and so the kind of work that Graf and Wellhausen did in the 19th century that was picked up almost as if it were the gospel itself by a lot of scholars who followed them, including some Lutherans in the 19th and early 20th centuries, was, in my opinion, time wasted um, and really a pity because some of those individuals were pretty bright men and scholars, and, and it's too bad, but... Uh, but that's something that I found when I wrote that conference paper two years ago um, and got, finally got to present it. But I thought I would share that with you. Um, another little aspect of, of, of doing work in the original language so that when somebody comes out with something that says, hey, here's an idea, we can go back and say, you know, this, this, this is what's wrong with that idea. So I'm always happy that way back in, in my early days in language studies, uh, Professor Jeske, John Jeske, had just retired, but his words still echoed in the seminary hallways. I could actually hear his voice echoing with these words. He himself was still around the campus at the time. But he would say, um, a man should not step into the pulpit and say, thus saith the Lord, unless he jolly well knows what the Lord hath said. And I, I really appreciate that, that sentiment. So... All right, Daniel 3, verse 6. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing, fiery furnace. I think Nebuchadnezzar was trying in some way to unify the worship practices of Babylon. Uh, this had happened before in a, a, in a country um, not long after the time of Moses, uh, uh, there came a pharaoh who rejected the polytheism of Egypt. Do you know about this and what happened? Egypt had all kinds of gods. You had Horus and Ra and 
Amun and uh, Sutek the destroyer and all kinds of other uh, Egyptian gods. And there came along a pharaoh, and I think his name at, 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 at first was Akhenamun. And uh, he, shortly after the time of Moses, tried to convert Egypt into a monotheistic, one God only religion. And he even didn't like the idea that they would depict the one God with the sun or the moon, but just one creating God. And instead of calling him Ra or Amun, he called him Aten and changed his name to Akhenaten. Um, I believe his son, uh, yeah, no, I, I do know that uh, one of his children was named Tutank Aten, who after his father, uh, there, there, there was a rebellion against his father, Akhenaten, uh, and his, uh, his monotheism didn't last in Egypt. He got overthrown. And his son changed his name back to Tutankhamun, so King Tut. But that's that time period. And it corresponds to the early years of the days of the judges in the, uh, oh, the 1200s BC, something like that. Um, so uh, trying to unify a nation under one deity was not unique to Nebuchadnezzar. It had been tried before. Um, but the problem is, when you try to unify people and force them to confess the same thing, and you do not convert them first, when you just use force, what happens when you try to take two glass glasses in your, in your cupboard and make them occupy the same space? Yeah, or both of them do. Yeah, uh, 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 Herman Sasi, uh, uh, a Lutheran uh, during World War II and after World War II, he survived. He was there um, in the Nazi period. Um, he wrote and spoke out against the Nazi regime because they were trying to force Lutherans to unite and to join together in unionism, which had been going on for a while in the eastern United States and in Germany, and Hitler thought, I'm not going to make everybody uh, uh, either Catholic or Protestant in, in Germany, but I can at least make all the Protestants one unified kind of Protestant. And Hitler was trying to do what others had tried to do before him, and that was unite all of the Lutherans and the Reformed into one denomination um, so that he could control them, of course. Um, and Sasi made that same analogy with the glass. You, you're going to end up shattering everything when you try to force unity. It may seem like you get unified for a while, but eventually you will end up with a lot smaller pieces than you started with and more of them. And we just saw that happen with a denomination in the U.S. They forced fellowship on the largest, or uh, not the largest, but the, uh, 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 quite a few of the Lutheran groups in 1988 and they formed the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America and how long did that experiment last? Yeah, 25 years uh, uh, is, and, uh, but all through that time, not even 25 years um, but all through that time uh, it shattered and broke and pieces kept breaking off and now 
the ELCA, which was at one time twice as big as the Missouri Synod, more than four million members, is now smaller than the Missouri Synod. And Missouri has not grown in those 25 years. Um, so uh, uh, they, they have shattered, and I think they're going to continue to shatter um, because of what happened. But uh, when you try to force this kind of unity and fellowship on people, you end up breaking apart the church itself. Therefore, uh, I'm just going to read verse 7 and maybe get into 8 and 9 and then talk a little bit more about church and state. Therefore, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, harp, triangular harp, and all kinds of musical instruments, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Um, so it, it seems to me as if the Babylonians, at least the, the locals, were willing to go along with what their temperamental king said. They knew he's pretty touchy, um, and so they were willing to go along with it. Uh, but the problem with Nebuchadnezzar was once he starts making demands of you, he's not going to stop. And so it's just, it's, just a it's just a bad day if he starts telling you you have to do this and you have to do that because he has something in the back of his mind that he's not telling you. That's the kind of a king he was. Um, he was trying to force this on his people. Um, in fact, if I can go back to the ELCA, there was an agenda that it, it became pretty clear in the 90s. I remember reading articles about this in our, in our publications and others that the ELCA had gone and adopted titles like um, bishop uh, in the ELCA. And what does that suggest to you when you hear the word bishop? Kind of Catholics. However, bishop is still a word used in Europe for European Lutherans. Um, they use bishops in Denmark and Norway and Sweden. With, with their churches. But it's not something we heard here in the United States. Um, and it seemed like they were trying to unify, I'll call it American Lutheran, with question mark European Lutheranism. Except that then they began to accept other things, like in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. What does that sound like to you? Go ahead and say it, Diane. Catholics, Catholics. yeah, it does. Yes. Well, yes, yes, and no. Um, yes, that's how I understand it, and that's, I'm guessing, how you understand it, but maybe that's because for the last 25 years we've been preaching and teaching that because it got misused by the ELCA. Um, because I'm not sure that the average um, carpenter, electrician, plumber, house painter, farmer in the Elka understood that distinction. Um, they just heard the word getting used. And uh, an analogy that, that, uh, that I used once with my bishop when I was a vicar, this was in 1997 or 98, was it kind of sounds like the ELCA is taking all of the round holes in the pegboard of the Lutheran church and making them square 
so that the square pegs in the Catholic Church will fit better. Um, and he said, I, I, I don't know if that's the case. And then we heard the president of the ELCA, or the, I'm sorry, the, the Supreme Bishop, whatever his or her name or title is, said exactly that. Uh, they said that their desire was that they could brush away all of the fellowship problems, at least the visual problems, between the Roman Catholic Church and Lutherans in America. So it's precisely what they were doing, um, which uh, just sends a chill up my spine that uh, you would go from, from, from saying we believe in the Lutheran confessions to the Lutheran confessions mean nothing at all and we would rather be back under the Pope um, and rather be subject to a church that teaches that we are not saved by faith in Christ alone. I mean, that's your bottom line and what are you doing? Well, they were trying to show that they were unified, they were trying to grow, it was a time when the growth of the church was believed to be the hallmark of God's blessing on the church. Is the growth of the church the hallmark of God's blessing on the church? Not the church. No, not the visible church at all. Um, uh, it is simply God blessing us and giving us his forgiveness. When the church stops asking for forgiveness, well, will God give it? Why shouldn't the government force its people to follow a unified worship? Right. Yeah, you just end up with an argument that goes around and around. And what, what will happen ultimately is that the person who is weaker or quieter or nicer will give in. Yeah. Yeah. And is that what God wants from us? Is that the kind of faith God wants from us? Can you give me an example of nations in the past that have attempted this? What did they try to do with the church? Yeah, they tried to eliminate. By the way, did the, did the Soviet Union eliminate the Christian church? Remember what happened right after the wall came down? There were Russian Orthodox priests who were there. You know, I mean, all of a sudden, and, and, and when religion became uh, acceptable again in the Soviet Union, it turned out there were all kinds of, of, of Soviets who had been going to church underground all this time. So praise God. The, 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 the gradual but um, seemingly unstoppable um, atheist trend in the U.S. is terrifying. Um, and, but, but even before that, though, we had, there, were, there were other forms of this um, because uh, prohibition was ultimately an attempt to shoehorn America into a more godly-seeming nation um, in its own way. Um, it, it's, it's a natural reaction, um, especially for somebody who, who is not well-grounded in the scriptures. You know, if, 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 if you make a mistake, that's actually what today's email devotion was about. If, if, uh, if I make a mistake in a Bible study and I say something that's, that's inaccurate, I would hope that someone would correct me. Um, can you think of a time when that happened in Scripture? Paul corrected Peter in Antioch. Also, Aquila and Priscilla took a guy named Apollos aside 
uh, because he didn't know all of the story of Jesus yet and didn't understand baptism. They took him quietly into their home, corrected him, and he became one of the most, I, I, I love the Greek word for, I, I think we translated fervent or something like that. The Greek word means boiling over with the spirit. I, I love that phrase. And uh, um, uh, uh, if you get my devotions, I'll, I, have, I, have, I have to send it after class today because it's not, I just finished it before class started. So you'll have to wait a couple minutes yet, but it's coming yet. Um, and then one with Moses. Who corrected Moses? Well, that was over practice. Um, no, I'm thinking of his wife. Moses had been commanded by God to circumcise. And what did he do? He didn't circumcise his own son. So, and when God came screaming across the desert to kill him, the man he had just called into his service... Um, his wife took a flint knife and did the circumcision herself um, and, uh, and corrected him. Yeah, Luther's wife had to correct him uh, over practice a couple of times. Why are you moping around the house so much? You know, she made him think, uh, she, what, 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 what did she do? Oh, she wore her, uh, her funeral outfit. And he said, what's wrong? And she said, God is dead. And he said, no, no, God's not dead. And she said, well, then how come you act like it? Um, yeah, yeah. God, give me a wife like Katie. Amazing. Um, other nations, I thought of uh, the Islamic conquests, uh, an attempt to convert the whole world to one denomination, the Crusades, uh, sad chapter. Of course, they were really fighting against the Islamic conquests. And although the Crusaders didn't always care if they were fighting Muslims or not, Sometimes the Crusaders fought against Christians. Um, they just looked different, and so they, they, they got that wrong. There were the Huguenots or Huguenots. Um, you know what country that is? They're French. French Reformed, uh, early Protestants, who had gotten a hold of the Reformation and tried to do their own thing and didn't really have a, a decent leader. Then there were the Conquistadors, Spaniards and uh, 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 Portuguese who came over to Mexico and South America and tried to, tried to convert with the sword. Um, and then there's the Thirty Years' War and, 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 and the Russian Revolution and the uh, atheism in Germany, atheism in the United States, atheism in Canada, atheism all over the world. That the, uh, where is the gospel growing right now? China, where, where, Joyce? Pakistan, Pakistan India, India. Um, yeah, those, those, those areas around north of, uh, north of uh, India, Africa, the gospel is growing through many of the countries, especially sub-Saharan Africa. You know what I mean by that? At the southern Africa. Uh, below the, the desert. The northern parts of Africa are still basically Muslim, um, but kind of everything down in the green part of Africa is, uh, is, is, is converting to Christianity. Um, a, a lot of non-denominational Christian churches and groups down there, not a, under, not a lot of understanding about fellowship and other doctrines, but a lot of growth of the gospel. They need strong leaders. Um, 
and uh, so we'll keep them in our prayers as well. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Orleans, Minnesota.